with title cards like these, right? Why do you need to have a message? It's just, you can, already can tell it's gonna be um, a great, uh, great time. And that's, seriously, we're gonna have a good time today. If you have a, B- a Bible with you, we're gonna be in Revelation chapter three. We're gonna read the passages that bookend this chapter, Revelation three, verse one through six, and then 14 through the end uh, to get us started today uh, as we talk about um, a very important, uh, very important conversation uh, around a, a word that we're probably familiar with, um, but maybe we don't quite know exactly what it means. So I think we're going to learn something today. Uh, Revelation 3, verse number 1 through 6, then we'll drop down to verse 14. The Word of God says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Down in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold or find in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed." Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just to Sardis, not just to Laodicea, but even to us. If you haven't been with us, we're studying the book of Revelation, the book of the Revelation to make it, to, to get it right. Um, a single revelation given to the apostle John, uh, who was the last living apostle who was visited by Jesus while he was exiled um, on the Isle of Patmos. And we've learned so far, this book is written to and for the church. The book of Revelation is not just a book that was written to an ancient audience or to a far future audience, but it's written to and for the church, as in us. Every generation of Christians, this book was written to the church for the church with two agendas, to call us to total loyalty in Jesus and equip us with true endurance as the world's pressure on us mounts more and more. So in many ways, Revelation is mostly about this pressure, the tension that has existed, will exist, and will always persist between the church and the world, the children of God and the children of wrath. 
Revelation was written, a timeless book, to every church of every generation with a warning of the pressure that we will face in this age, but also a witness to the grace of God that has saved us and will sustain us to the end of this age. The book of Revelation is known for its fantastical and dramatic images and visions that often leave us confused, bewildered, maybe scared, but usually all that's detached from the, how the book begins, which is usually pretty important to know the direction of any given book. Uh, so of note, Revelation begins by basically giving the reader a lens through which we are to read and understand and interpret the book. Back in chapter 1, we've looked at this passage week after week. Uh, if you want to turn back there, you can. Back in chapter 1, verse 17 through 20, Jesus gives John the lens by which this book should be interpreted. And I've brought us back to this again and again because I want us to make sure we understand that this book wasn't just written to some audience long ago or isn't just written to some audience to come, but it's written to us, maybe most importantly. Revelation verse 1 through verse 1 and 17, Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, as in I am bookending this generation. I started it and I will see it to its conclusion. I founded the church on the rock, on my crucifixion, on my resurrection. My spirit has filled the church. My spirit will take care of the church and I will see this generation to its very end. He is the first, he is the last. He has the first word, he will have the last word. Jesus says, I am he who lives, I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. So when you feel like you have been buried, don't give up because there is a resurrection around the corner. But verse 19 is the thesis of this book. He says, John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place. As in John, you're about to see a kaleidoscopic vision. You're about to see things that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen. You're going to see things the church has faced, the church is facing, and the church will face as long as this age persists. He gives John a specific audience to send this book to in the first generation. He sends it to seven different churches of the ancient continent, ancient country of Turkey, referred to as Asia here, but uh, we've talked about that, the nation of Turkey where these seven churches were gathered closely together. So Revelation is aptly named because it reveals to the church what is going on around us, the forces that oppose us, and the presence and power who is with us. Revelation is indeed a revelatory resource and a roadmap for the church. We are placed as a lamp in a dark world with a mission to exalt Jesus, to win hearts to God, and to overcome evil with his good. The first few chapters address seven different churches of ancient Turkey, which are representative of the church that would spread to the whole world We've spent two weeks talking about these churches and finding ourselves in them, hearing how God's word to them is as appropriate and fitting for us. We talked about the churches that had just gotten into a slump, those that had become distracted from the mission and from the Lord, which has been easy for the church to find itself doing and continuing to do. We talked about the churches that were facing intense persecution, faithfully holding on even in. We discussed how God's patience with and commitment to the world brings against us the ire of the enemy and it tests our grit and it tests our endurance. So far, we've learned that where they stumbled, we stumble. Where they struggled, we struggle. But what was encouraging and enlightening to them 
is as important and helpful for us. So far, we've heard the word that Jesus sent to Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, and Philadelphia, which leaves us with just two. And today we're going to look at those remaining churches, which may prove to spark the most sobering and the most challenging conversation we've had yet, but also might be the most important and the most essential one yet. Today's message from Revelation 3 is going to be perhaps the most revealing of them all, and maybe the most revealing message from the book. We haven't touched on this much, though. The, the word revelation where the word reveal comes from. The word revelation uh, comes from the Greek word that you may be familiar with. It's the Greek word apocalypse. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse in our language, uh, thanks to Hollywood and some other ways, other, uh, other resources, um, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think catastrophes, don't we? We think bombastic, world-ending circumstances. I think our brains are kind of like what happens when you type, ap- type apocalypse into Google. We see images like this wastelands that have been overran by chaos and maybe we see those horsemen from last week that we believe that bring some chaos on the world maybe we see some image of of an abandoned city where a few lone survivors are wandering through the ruins when we hear apocalypse we think of things like this don't we we think of devastation we think of uh, climatic events that leave everything in destruction but the actual definition of apocalypse is much more subtle than that Apocalypse, as defined, is an unveiling, an uncovering, or as we say in English, a revealing or a revelation. As in peeling back the surface that may tell one story and revealing that there's another story being written and proclaimed underneath. The idea of apocalypse is that something is underneath the presentation. And by peeling back the surface, we see the real picture. I think we define the word, the way we define the word may actually uh, say a lot about how this premise lands with us because often the idea of exposing what we've covered up, the idea of exposing what we've dressed up does not sit too well with us, does it? The idea of pulling back the curtains and revealing what we've done well to hide, that makes us think that maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea. If I may prod a bit or just a little, what if What if what was on the surface of our lives was peeled back to reveal what is often hidden? What what, what would happen? What would be the story that would be told? Would we be delighted? Would we be ashamed? Would we be proud of what would be seen? And, and, And how much difference is there in what we present to the world and what is under the surface? If the idea of an apocalypse is something that you're uncomfortable with, if you take advantage of and heed what the true meaning of the word is, the work of God, the work that God wants to do there, then apocalypse does not have to be something we have to fear or be afraid of. Maybe the face that we work so hard to preserve what's really there and present something else already answers the question of how we feel about apocalypses, though, how we feel about something being peeled back. The recipients of these two letters that we've read already today embody the true devastation that comes from and comes with an apocalypse because what's peeled away with these two reveals something much worse than they were presenting. Now, let me be clear about this though. The apocalypse is in and of themselves, the notion of something being exposed and revealed isn't by nature devastating. An apocalypse isn't by nature, it doesn't have to be something bad or doesn't have to lead to something bad. 
That's just the connotation, the correlation that we've accepted. You see, Revelation truly balances both sides of an apocalypse. Because on one hand, what's peeled away reveals something glorious on the horizon, while on the other hand, what's rolled back exposes something negative, something in some ways very incriminating. But again, when we hear apocalypse, we hear something that's disruptive. We hear something that's threatening. But the reality is, the only threat or disruption with an apocalypse is if there is duplicity between the surface and the substance. That the only time an apocalypse threatens anybody is if what we're presenting is not what is underneath. If what is seen is not what is unseen. If what we present is not what we have hidden. We often talk about apocalypse in terms of the end when this world will experience judgment and those that belong to God will be spared. And while Revelation does point to a day when a final apocalypse, a final revealing will take place, it also points and talks about many different apocalypse that take place during the church age, which are meant to do the same thing on a smaller but as powerful scale. The apocalypses that come upon God's people are meant to highlight what's good, right, and eternal and expose what's harmful, sinful, and worthless to bring attention to what is good and endorse it and to expose what is bad and condemn it. You see, in some ways, in many ways, really, what Revelation teaches us is that any encounter with God's word is an apocalyptic opportunity, that we can experience our own sort of personal apocalypses. Anytime we open God's word and hear God's word, God is talking to us about what we say and what really is, what we profess and what we may be hiding. He's trying to make sure that there is no duplicity, there is no hypocrisy, there is no difference in what is on the surface and what is under the surface. For something to be revealed to us, God from his word reveals to us, about us, to our world, about our world. Something we learn and understand quickly is how blessed are we? How blessed we are to experience an apocalypse on our own terms because therein is an opportunity to correct any hypocrisy that may be exposed. And I want you to understand, when we say the word apocalypse, again, don't think of the bombastic explosions and devastations. Think of God revealing something to you. Think of God from his word showing you something that is good and right and, and, and blessed and making a contrast between what is bad, harmful, and worthless and trying to see what is right or what isn't right in your own life. That is what the word revelation means. It peels back and exposes what's underneath. And if the idea of an apocalypse is something that we continue to be uncomfortable with, we can take advantage of every opportunity we have with God's word as God wants to draw out in us a response. And here's a little secret about apocalypses. Usually the sort of events that circumstances we would refer to as devastating apocalypses, usually they are preceded by these opportunities from God that give people a chance to change the direction of their lives before it is too late. The Bible is full of those kind of stories, especially the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel was up and down in its walk with God, more down than up because they ignored God's warning and did not heed his prescriptions. You're probably familiar with, with the period of the Old Testament often called the Babylonian exile, where the ancient Israelites were taken out of their country and put in a foreign land. If you read the books of 2 Kings, the prophets of those days, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, You'll get the gist that Israel did not heed God's word. They did not amend their ways. They did not correct their hypocrisy or their duplicity. So as he began to peel back their lives, he exposed 
them, not just to the world, but to themselves. The prophet Isaiah said this, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The prophet Ezekiel had a conversation with God and this is what God told Ezekiel. They come to you as, my pe- as people come. They sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. As a result of ignoring God's word, they were exposed as being frauds of faith. Israel went through what many considered an apocalypse. The judgment of God brought the nation to a foreign land. They went from sovereign to slavery, from independence to exile. They became captives to Babylon who ruled the world at the time. And what we learn from that story is that God leveraged Israel's rebellion to reveal himself to the whole world. And even in their disobedience, he still used them to open the rest of the world up to the one true way to live. He used Israel's disobedience to show the rest of the world that they weren't in obedience either. So God uses Israel to expose Babylon, its sin, and give them a chance to put faith in him. So God can multitask, which is a good thing to know about the Lord. But God positions Israel, uh, positions an Israelite named Daniel, who would have been a potential future king of Israel, but he was taken into the courts of Babylon, trained and meant to be brainwashed, but he resisted that. He stayed faithful to God. He proved to be smart and beneficial as an advisor, and he made, it, made himself a name in the Babylonian kingdom. God used Daniel to show the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, that Israel's God was actually in control of the kingdoms of man. Daniel communicated to Nebuchadnezzar that the kingdoms of the earth are like beasts of the field, in the eyes of God. They resist being tamed. They oppose surrendering. They appear sophisticated. They appear sovereign. They appear supreme. But peel back the facade and they're just beasts. Nebuchadnezzar scoffed at that idea. He had an image erected in his own image to honor himself. He brought defiance against God. He would not worship the one true God. But that story did not end the way he expected it to. Nebuchadnezzar one day was out on his balcony observing his glorious kingdom and bragging about all that he had done. But then this happened. Nebuchadnezzar thought to himself, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my own majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from the heavens, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field." Nebuchadnezzar experienced his own apocalypse. He is given the chance to amend his ways, but he goes and spends years acting like an animal. They had to hide him from the rest of the kingdom. But finally, at the end of that seven years, he bows and honors Yahweh as the one true God. He confesses that Babylon and all of its splendor would be nothing if it were all peeled away. And he warns the kingdom to not wait for their own apocalypse, but let his be an example to amend their ways now. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Unless we choose to humble ourselves first. He warned his son and his grandson to lead the nation forward in humility under this decree and under these revealed truths, but that's far from what happened. His son, Nabonidus, is so caught up in preserving his glory and kingdom, he joins a cult and goes out into the desert, never to be seen again. Uh, his son, Belshazzar, is left second in command, but acts as emperor, and years go by, Nebuchadnezzar passes away, and his apocalypse is long forgotten until God raises up an elderly Daniel to bring forth a much, con much more consequential apocalypse. Belshazzar throws a feast to honor his father and himself to show that he especially disregarded his father's decrees about the Jewish God. He brings the temple vessels from the Jewish temple brought out and used in the feast to show contempt and mockery to the Jews and to their God. And while they were drinking and feasting and reveling, something eerie and at the same time something remarkable happened. If you want to put a marker where you're at in Revelation, turn back with me to Daniel 5 and let's read about this remarkable event. Daniel 5, you could call it the Babylonian apocalypse because it would be the end of the Babylonian empire as the world knew it. Uh, Daniel 5 records this feast where Belshazzar uh, is feasting with his lords and all of his advisors and all of his kingdom and they are just reveling in all that they have accomplished mocking the Jewish God who warned them that they must humble themselves or it would cost them, mocking what Nebuchadnezzar even taught them. In Daniel 5, verses 5 and 6, while they were partying and while they were drinking and while they were going about their merry selves, the scripture says, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him. The joints of his hips were loosened. His knees knocked against each other. Belshazzar began to wonder who can make sense of this, who can interpret this, realizing it, was something, uh, it wasn't something that would be good. Almost unanimously, everybody who served his father and grandfather began telling stories of Daniel, how Daniel had a gift to explain and interpret riddles. Daniel had a gift to reveal, to peel back what was mysterious and bring to light what the one true God was saying to us, to bring to light the truth between what appeared to be and what was. Daniel, at this point, is an older man, retired from his previous days serving Nebuchadnezzar. He's retrieved, and Belshazzar offers him a third of the kingdom if he can reveal what the handwriting on the wall said. And Daniel says, no thanks, I don't need a third of the kingdom, but God does use him to usher in what would be a true and final apocalypse for the Babylonians. Stemming from and flowing from the crooked heart of its king, down in verse number 18 of chapter five, listen to how Daniel explains this to Belshazzar. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. 
He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was like the beast, and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules the kingdoms of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, made a mockery of the things from the Lord's house. At the end of that verse, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Then then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and the writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, you parson. This is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have weighed, you have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Paris, or you parson, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. At the end of that night, verse number 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And the Persians and the Medes, waiting at the gates, destroyed Babylon, the great. While the Babylonians were celebrating themselves, the Medes and Persians had routed the river surrounding the imperial city. They thought it was an impenetrable impenetrable fortress. They dried up the moat, they breached the fortress, and that very night, every royal official in the banquet hall, except for Daniel, was killed. And the hand that wrote on the wall was on Daniel as the rest were taken." And this was their epitaph. This was what was inscribed on their graves. You were weighed in the balances and found wanting or lacking. You were weighed on the scales of eternity and you have come up empty. You ignored the many apocalypses which you were invited to surrender to God. Every time God revealed something that needed to change, you turned away. And now in your resistance, you'll suffer a final apocalypse because where the final revealing comes, there's nothing of substance left. You've been weighed and been found wanting. In a sense, this is the word that has come to the churches of Revelation that we looked at today. This is the word that God has for Sardis and Laodicea. They appeared to be one thing. They were known as one thing. They had a reputation that glamorized them as one thing, but the truth was the very opposite. Do you see that? Sardis and Laodicea were known and boasted themselves as being churches that had it all and knew it all. But the writing on the wall revealed they had nothing where it counted. They did not know God at all. And worse of all, they were not known by God at all. Back in Revelation, there's two verses to highlight in both of those passages. Verse 1 and verse 17. Verse 1, after the introduction Jesus says, I know your works and that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And then he says to Laodicea, you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. You know, this begs the question though. 
Because these were churches. These were people that bandied about as people of God. These were people that worshipped God, that professed Jesus. These were not people that denied him or that opposed him. These were people that went into buildings like this week after week after week, dressing the right way, singing the right way, doing the right things, but their hearts were not right at all. And that begs the question, how could people who knew about God and were associated with God be exposed as being so far from God? It's not that complicated, really. It all comes down to where our faith is placed. You see, ultimately, we may sound spiritual, we may look spiritual, but if we live by any other means than God, if we live by faith in anything but God, we are not so spiritual at all. We are not spiritual at all. You see, what makes Sardis and Laodicea even more tragic than the story of Belshazzar and Babylon, though they had heard of God as well, Sardis and Laodicea were fully immersed and well-versed in Christianity. They were fully immersed in the system. They knew the Bible. They knew everything there was to know at this time about Jesus. They were immersed in the system, but their hearts were far from Jesus. You say, Justin, those are just two churches out of seven. Well, that's a pretty big, big, pretty big group of them, isn't it? Especially if these somehow represent the church at large to this day. The church was full of what we might call cultural Christians, but we should call them hypocrites. They professed Jesus, they sang about Jesus, but they did not trust in Jesus. It was really obvious by the lives they lived, they trusted in everything but him. But because they evoked his name and wore his name, it appeared as if they were as saved as anyone. However, let a little apocalypse roll in and the truth be revealed. Peel back the stickers and the results would be much different. The reality would be much different. Weigh, on their lives, weigh their lives on the scales of eternity. Measure their lives with the metrics of the scriptures and the results would be telling. And you know what the most dangerous and the most concerning element of this all was? If you were to ask Sardis and Laodicea church members, they were convinced they were doing everything right. They had no, uh, no idea that they were far from Jesus. They had played the part for so long. They twisted reality for so long. They believed their own hypocrisy. You know, our world today is obsessed with appearance and presentation. We are masters of masquerading and displaying what we think people want to see. We conceal something entirely different. And over time, we can be deceived by our own displays. And this is why it's so important, so essential to read God's word, to allow God's word to check us, why it's important for the church to not shy away from these conversations. Why pastors and those who handle God's word cannot ignore these types of messages and types of scripture. Because they hold a light up to our lives. They offer us a sort of controlled apocalypse. The truth can be revealed. What's concealed can be evaluated. And we have an opportunity to correct what might be condemned, to strengthen what remains. Jesus' word to Sardis and Laodicea may have been hard to hear, but it was truly an invitation for those who had gotten it wrong. And it's an invitation to us still yet. A word about Sardis. Sardis was a city positioned over a cliffside. It was a city that was fortified, that it was only fortified on the periphery going down the hill. They felt no need to put walls or gates or fortresses around the cliffside. 
because how would there ever be an invasion from the hills? Who could climb the cliff and invade them that way? Twice in history, though, Sardis was invaded, much like Babylon before it, was invaded and conquered through this otherwise considered impossible way. They were conquered because the soldiers that were able to scale the cliff entered the city through its unprotected side. Jesus says, strengthen that which remains, or there is a breach in your heart. You know it. You may hide it well. You may, through your religious pageantry, put on one front, but everyone, everyone may think that there is no breach, there is no disconnect, there is no duplicity, but we know, don't we? Sardis was well aware that cliffside made them vulnerable, but they did not think anybody could ever get in that way. But you know who knows very well about the breaches, about the holes, the gaps in our faith? Satan knows where we are unguarded and it is his desire to destroy us through that breach. If there is an area or there are areas of our lives where we let our guard down or we keep our guard down, where we have not surrendered to Jesus, where we have not turned over and entrusted it to God, God's word to us in Revelation 3 verse 2 is strengthen that which remains and is ready to die or is potentially your end is threatening to undo you threatening to expose and unravel what otherwise looks well and presentable he says that so that verse 3 does not have to be true he says i will come as a thief and you will not know what hour i will come as in you will not be aware and you will not have a chance to act then Jesus calls Sardis to strengthen what remains, to wake up. He sees past the veneer, the outer coating. He sees and knows the substance, the actual heart of an object. In verse 5, we see a reference to Jesus confessing names before his father, which I think is a clear callback to what he said in the Gospels. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father. But whoever denies me, I will deny before my father. So he says here, if you come back to me, I will confess you before my father. But if you deny me, I will deny you. I think they were denying Jesus in some area of their life. They were evoking him in so many areas, but there were some areas where they were denying him where they were leaving him out of the conversation, where they were not deferring to him, they were not glorifying him, where they were not honoring him, they were confessing him in every other area, but there was this breach in their life. They said they were alive, but the truth is that they were dead. Now, a quick note on verses five reference to, I will blot or I will not blot out their names from the book of life. The book of life is mentioned in just a few places in the Bible. It could very well be a symbolic idea. God knows our names. He knows our hearts. He doesn't need to write something down. He knows it. He never forgets. But nonetheless, this is meant to send a clear message about our relationship with God. And I think we can can think about the book of life as God's role book. Again, God does not need a book that has names in it. He knows our names. He has everybody's names quickly uh, available to his mind. But the book of life is like God's role book. But that brings to mind a few questions. Whose name is written there? Who's, when was the role created? What 
when was the role created and, and, and how, what does it mean to have your name on that role? First off, let's remember that we are God's idea long before we were ever our parents' idea. Even if your parents didn't have an idea for you and then you just showed up, right? You were God's idea, whether you were anybody else's idea. You were God's idea before you were anybody else's idea. Psalm 139 makes it very clear. David says, you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's true for all of us. Every single person is formed and knitted together by their heavenly father. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Everybody, everybody. Jeremiah said this, before I, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So we believe this is true for everybody. Everybody. Not just the ones that get it right. Not just the ones that put faith in God. Everybody. God creates us for his good and for his glory. He has zero intentions of anybody missing out on his plans for their lives. 2 Peter 3, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what does this tell us about God? He has a plan for everyone to know him and live forever with him. It is not his will that any should die apart from faith in Christ. So may I offer you a bit of perspective that may be different than usual? There is nowhere in the Bible where someone's name is written down after they accept Jesus. There's only references to names being written there and then being blotted out from there. So could it be that every name begins there and only those that refuse to trust in Jesus are removed? Because it wouldn't it be appropriate and fitting with God's heart that he has everybody's name on his roll? Because he doesn't intend or will that anybody not be on his roll. He has a will for everyone to know him and be in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And he will put grace upon grace upon grace in the way of everyone to get them there. So could it be when the Bible says someone's name might be blotted out, it's not talking about someone falling from grace. It's not talking about someone losing their security in Christ. It's talking about those that never trust in Jesus. Those who appear to have security, but they have a well-hidden breach that may reveal that all is not well. And that was the case for these people of Sardis. They appeared to be in Christ, but the end would reveal that they were not in him after all real quickly a word about Laodicea to wrap things up let's read verses 15 through 20 one more time I know your works you're neither hot nor cold I wish you were cold or hot so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will vomit you spill you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and need nothing and do not know you're wretched and blind miserable poor and naked I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see 
As many as I love, underline, highlight that. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and sup with him and dine with him and he with me. Laodicea was between two very well-known cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs. The water was 95 degrees plus. Colossae was famous for its cold, crisp, pure water. The water of Laodicea was piped in via an ancient aqueduct system, but it was contaminated. It would be used for washing only, but it could not be drank. It was impure and emetic, and it would cause you to vomit if you drank it. Drinking the water was not a problem for the town, though, because Laodicea had a lot of money and could import whatever they needed from wherever it needed to come from. Laodicea was a wealthy banking center. They had very deep pockets. They had made advancements in ophthalmology. They had uh, developed ways to treat eye disorders and vision issues before anyone else in the world ever had. They were a fashion trend-setting city with manufacturing black, glossy fabrics that the whole world wanted to buy. And all these reasons made Rome give a special attention to Laodicea. Rome took interest in this eye salve because it could help their soldiers see better and be more vigilant on the battlefield. And it gave their royal, royal and dignitary people uh, ability to prolong losing their vision. But they did not want to pay for this eye salve that Laodicea thought was worth a lot. So Rome would send its legions of soldiers to exert dominance over the city. Because Laodicea's affluence, it was known as a place for lavish banquets and meals. Rome demanded the red carpet be rolled out for them and its soldiers, the tables be set for its men when they came to town. So when the Laodiceans heard the pounding on the gates, they knew it was the Romans shouting, let us in, prepare for us supper. Set the tables and pack our supply boxes. Laodicea wasn't thrilled with Rome's bully oversight, but they put up with it because they thought it gave them a sense of importance and security. They had a name and a place in the Roman Empire that many cities envied. Even if they were pushed around by Rome, at least they made everyone else jealous. The Laodiceans were unaware of their true condition, mistakenly thought that they had no outstanding needs. Just like Sardis, they thought they had a name. They thought they had made it, but they ignored the breach. While this was the shot, God was peeling back the facade that they had created to reveal the truth. Verse number 17, Jesus' word to them is very powerful. You say I am rich. You say I have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind. In this moment, Jesus exposes their spiritual poverty, their nakedness and their blindness, which had been masked by worldly and religious means. And he invites them in verse 18, buy from him gold refined in the fire that they might be really rich. Take garments from him that they might be clothed. Anoint their eyes with real eye salve, spiritual eye salve that they might see. Jesus invites them to trust in him alone. Gold, that, uh, gold from him speaks of the value that he gives us. Worth that's greater than a worldly status. Garments that do not fade. Righteousness that is not based on what we do, but based on what he has done. Salve that we may see he opens our eyes to spiritual things in new life. These indictments to Sardis and Laodicea leave so many questions over and for the church today, I believe. 
Because Laodicea found its comfort in the world, found its reward in the world, found its definition in the world. And it begs these questions of us. What brings you the most comfort? Worldly security or eternal security? Ask yourselves, what would you rather have and chart where you spend the most effort chasing? What's most rewarding to you? Worldly prosperity or spiritual depth? Again, just check the breadcrumbs. What defines us? What characterizes us? This world, its systems, its agendas, or Jesus? What we're most passionate about reveals everything. Verse 19 calls us to repent because God does not want anyone to go to hell. The final apocalypse. God calls us to repentance because he does not want any of us to die apart from him. Which is where every idea, every system, every political, economic, social, cultural agenda will be cast into the lake of fire one day. Being consumed and put away. God does not want us to spend eternity with where this world will spend eternity. And let me make it very clear. If we understand value, prosperity, and identity like the Laodiceans did, yet we confess Jesus, what does our profession of faith even mean? That's what Jesus is confronting them about. You confess me, but you don't value and you don't find your value in me. You don't find your identity in me. You don't find your worldview through me. So what exactly is your faith doing? What exactly has it saved you from? Revelation draws a clear line of contrast between those after God's image and those after the world's image. Those who belong to the lamb and those that belong to the beast. Those who live by the true and only prophet and those who walk after the false prophet. Those who join the bride of Christ and those members of the adulterous worldly system. Those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus and those who will drink the wrath of God. Yet what is God's posture towards the church and all that are, that are following the world's way? He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will dine with him and he with me. The Romans forced their way in and took their food. Jesus knocks and waits for us to let him in and he brings the food with him, by the way. You see, we see the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jesus has provided the way, but we must accept it. We must live it as well. Otherwise, we may say that we're alive, but the truth may be that we're dead. If we are not clothed in Christ, finding our value and worth in him, spiritually, we're naked and exposed. If we don't see the world through Christ, his word, and his will, we are blind, no matter how superior we think we see everything. If we don't value treasure in eternity more than treasure on earth, we are poor. If our reliance and trust is on any other foundation but Christ alone, we are on sinking sand. If we don't find our life in Christ and live out our faith in him, we are dead. Jesus stands at our hearts this morning knocking. He bids us to embrace him, to find everything in him that this world may offer us but never will give us. So the question, is there a breach in your faith? Is there a gap in your heart? Perhaps there's not just a gap. Perhaps the treasures and clothing and views of this world that dominate your life reveal that you've never truly surrendered to Jesus. 
You've never trusted in him. You've never asked him to save you and give you what only he can give, eternal life. Perhaps as a believer, you'd like to confess that you stand in need of renewal and revival because as we've looked at this book called The Apocalypse, as we've had the reality peeled back, maybe this apocalypse has revealed to you that Jesus is on the outside looking in. You've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting of one thing. You need Jesus. You need more of Jesus, maybe. He stands at the door and knocks today. He says, if you will let me in, I will sup with you and dine with you and I will fill your heart with value and treasure that this world cannot give. So the question is, would you let him in? And would you get rid of anything in the way to keep him at the center of your heart? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation, for this apocalypse that peels back what's on the surface and reveals what's underneath. Lord, maybe somebody here today would want to confess that after this revelation, after looking at your word and letting the word come to them, they've realized Jesus is on the outside. They say the things and they do the things and they look the part, but he's not there. Lord, would you give them the courage would you give them the courage to confess that they have never received him as their savior and that they want him in their hearts today? Would you give them that invitation? As he knocks and he says, if you let me in, I will come in and dine with you and give you eternal life. Lord, maybe somebody today would like to confess that they need Jesus as their savior and they wanna start fresh with him. Maybe someone wants to rededicate their life and start over today. Lord, you're the God of second, third, fourth, as many chances as we need. Lord, would you give that person that courage to step out today? to reach up to heaven today and receive from you what the world cannot give them. Lord, maybe we've bandied about ourselves as if we have a name, as if we've done this and done that, but the reality is we need you. And that's the more, most important need that we have. Lord, would you use this invitation to draw us all closer to you? Lord, draw us all back to you. And maybe for the first time, draw us all to put our faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.